You're listening to Chicago Writes, the podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. On this episode of Chicago Writes, the podcast of the Chicago Writers Association, ChicagoWrites.org, writing and marketing horror with author Dan Klefstad. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. But first, a few announcements. Congratulations to the finalists of our 12th annual Book of the Year Awards. Winners will be announced on December 5th, 2022, and will be honored at a ceremony at the Bookseller on January 21st, 2023. So stay tuned. Call for submissions. Since its launch in 2009, the CWA Speakers Bureau has provided CWA members a valuable opportunity to book events, build their individual platforms, and sell books while simultaneously offering event programmers a trusted resource to guide their programming efforts. But you must be a current CWA member. After a two-year COVID hiatus, the CWA Speakers Bureau is back. We will finalize and post the 2023 Speakers Bureau menu to our website and distribute a hard copy of the menu to some 200 Chicago area libraries and venues in early January. For submission guidelines, rules, fees, and deadline, visit chicagorights.org or click on the link below. Fees can be made via the PayPal link or by sending a check made payable to Chicago Writers Association, P.O. Box 6505, Evanston, Illinois, 60204. Payments must be received by December 4th. All presentations are subject to CWA approval and listings will be edited as necessary to meet style, space, and tone requirements. Please contact CWA Speakers Bureau Director Daniel Smith at 708-717-6126 or smithwriting at gmail.com for any questions. Registration is now open for the 2023 Let's Just Write, an Uncommon Writers Conference, voted one of the best writing conferences in the U.S. by The Writer Magazine. That all happens March 25th and 26th, 2023 at the Warwick Allerton Hotel in the heart of Chicago's Loop, 701 North Michigan Avenue. Two days, 20 plus presenters, workshops, sessions, panels, and more. Your registration fee includes breakfast both days, one lunch, and a banquet dinner on Saturday night at the hotel. There is an $85 fee for any additional guests to attend the banquet dinner. Plus, we have a stellar lineup of five agents and three independent publishers, all ready to listen to your pitches for any genre. There will be craft presentations, as well as panels on everything from poetry to the legal aspects of writing, a live lit event, networking, and much, much more. Reserve your spot now by November 30th, 2022 for early registration discounts. Visit chicagorights.org for complete details. Register for Let's Just Write, an Uncommon Writing Conference from the Chicago Writers Association, March 25th through the 26th. 2023 at wildapricot.org.
Chicago Writers Association is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Like love and sex, fear is instinctual. The fight or flight response to things which may cause us harm is centered in our amygdala, a roughly almond-shaped mass of gray matter inside each cerebral hemisphere involved with the experiencing of emotions, the roots of our nightmares. This is the domain of the horror writer, but there is more to horror stories that in what they teach us. It is the training ground of sorts, defining how we may react, but also what we should react to. Our rational minds know the dark characters of horror tales will not harm us. These stories teach us to act rationally and not allow our fears to run rampant and out of control. Beyond the macabre, these are moralistic stories about life, love, and eternity. When you write horror, you are writing about so much more. Dan Klefstad is a longtime radio host and newscaster at NPR station WNIJ in DeKalb. His latest novel, Fiona's Guardians, is about humans who work for a beautiful and manipulative vampire named Fiona. The book was adapted by artists Ensemble Theater for their Mysterious Journey podcast. We'll speak more about that in just a little bit. In October 2022, Fiona's Guardians will be released as a hardcover edition with new chapters. We're going to talk about that as well, too, Dan. Uh, Fiona's Guardians offers a fresh perspective on the timeless take of the vampire genre. The protagonist, or main character, is a moral fixer for a vampire, Fiona. Fiona's Guardians is about the moral negotiations we make with ourselves, a parable on the sacrifices and negotiations with evil we consider for our own wealth and security. Did I get that right? Yes. <laughs> Good. I, 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 I say I say we end this interview here and win sure. and end on a winning note. Great talking to you, Bill. I'll see you. <laughs> no, it's it's great. First of all, it's great having you here on on the podcast. Uh, but it's it's just great Thanks. seeing you again. Likewise, it's been a few years, I think, a couple of years, rather, uh, since we got together on, uh, on your old radio show. So, yeah, yes. I'm excited to be with you again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're, we're going to get the I don't know if you've, if you've had a chance to catch the uh, Chicago Rights podcast, but this is about the nuts and bolts of writing, specifically about the successes and, and maybe the near successes or even failures that you've had with marketing yeah. lessons learned and, and, yeah. and some of that. We'll also talk about what uh, what makes a good horror story from an expert as it, as it were so let's start at the beginning how did the seed for fiona's guardians begin or take root well i've always been interested in monsters and in particular vampires uh, and i can get into a little bit of that a, a, a little into that uh, the details of that but um at some point i i, I, be, I began to question I, I began to ask a question what would it be like to live with a vampire who you are working with. This is a, a creature that has employed you for a purpose of, you know, of serving their needs. Uh, what would that be like? And, you know, what would it be like to, you know, sit at the uh, kitchen table and have conversations with a creature that is centuries old? Uh -huh. and, uh, and, you know, how does that work, living with a creature like this? And I just thought, well, let's go ahead and just ex explore this. And I did so in a short story called The Caretaker, which was uh, picked up by the literary journal Crack the Spine back in 2017. Mm -hmm. And this story um, 
which became part of the novel, Fiona's Guardians, this story introduced the vampire Fiona and her main guardian, Daniel, to, to the world. We had this conversation with uh, with Alex Poppy, who writes uh, in our last uh, our last episode, Chicago writes. Uh, she writes deal, uh, fiction dealing with women's issues, rape and abuse, and marginalization. Uh, we spoke about not relying too heavily on shock and disgust because those things are easily accessible now and easily found on on the internet. Um, those things, however, can be the bread and butter for the horror writer. Do I have that right? Oh yes, it can be. But I, I do like a slow burn horror, uh, you know, where okay. it starts off with dread and then how that just sort of builds and builds and builds until at some point you realize, yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, and then yes, there there'll be a, the, those moments where of terror. But uh, I think you can also find original ways to make uh, your reader uh, feel fear. Mm -hmm. you know? and, you, and you certainly have with uh, with Fiona's Guardians. This is a, a really fresh take on on what was kind of becoming a tired genre. Agreed. What, what makes <laughs> what makes in, in your opinion uh, a good horror story? I think that this story tries to bring it down to a human level. Um, again, what it's like to work with, live with, and then carry out uh -huh. a vampire's orders, uh, as you would as uh -huh. a, an employee for any job, right? Uh -huh. Except that this, jo this, this job involves finding blood for a creature that needs 10 pints of human blood every night. And I would um, say I would say that also applies to many, many corporate jobs. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and so uh, it, there's an opportunity here for a person. I mean, he can't go home. Daniel can't go home empty-handed. He has to bring this blood because there's uh -huh. a question of what would uh -huh. happen to him if he doesn't provide Fiona uh -huh. with 10 pints of, she prefers O negative too. Yeah, he's, he becomes breakfast. Right, he could be. So <laughs> so yes, I wanted to bring this down to a very relatable level. And I think that is a great way to introduce elements of horror in a story because the, the reader, I, I intended the reader to be drawn in with something that looked familiar. You know, or I mean, the the act of going to work, and you have to provide. Uh, in this case, it's blood, but you know, it could be you got to provide for your family, bring the bacon home, you know, so so to speak. So uh, keeping it relatable uh, helped me layer in the uh, the elements of horror. And it turns out, one of the earliest scenes in the book involves Daniel acting mm -hmm. like the monster. I pulled this. Uh, th there's a, there's a couple of stories that I, that I pulled and and, and I, I amalgamated all of the the points. I want to get your 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 take as we we take them uh, one by one. This is uh, uh, this begins from the Reedsy blog, uh, June twentieth uh, of this year. How to write a horror story in seven uh, in seven seven tips. Uh, start with a fear factor. You have to have something that drives attention, yeah. drives the plot. And fear is a good element uh, to do that. You know, uh -huh. you, if you, it, you you set up an expectation of the reader that something's going to happen, and then you're also going to set up an something a left hook, maybe something that they're not expecting. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have to create that paranoia, keep your reader from getting comfortable, from from you know, if, make them feel as if the ground is beginning to shift beneath their feet. Yeah. and that is a great way to begin instilling fear uh, in your in your reader. And you do that with with Daniel, kind of pulling him down this this rabbit hole until there's virtually no way out for him. Exactly, and basically, the minute he takes the job, 
Mm -hmm. uh, with the first vampire he works for, Soren Felenius, who is related to Fiona. Uh, and, and then he starts working, Daniel starts working for Fiona. Really, the minute he took that first job, there's no way out. He's in that society. It's mm -hmm. kind of like joining, I don't know, the mafia. You know, you can't, you're not in one foot out and one foot in. You're in all the way. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, a great way to instill fear as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is number two. I think it, it probably should have been number one. Pick a, pick a horror story subgenre. They go on to say the tone and atmosphere of your story will hang upon its, uh, its sub subgenre. Thriller, horror, gross out horror, classic horror, terror. And they, they, they go through some sub subgenres, uh, mm -hmm. psychological horror, gothic undertones, uh, all of that. Talk about, talk about that a bit in relation to The Undis Guardians. Yeah, well, for Theona's Guardians, I, there are recognizable gothic elements. I like to call it a modern gothic tale. There are elements that are recognizable to anybody who's watched movies made in the last half century or more. We all know what a gothic horror story looks like, mm -hmm. but I try to not to give you the castle. I try not to give you the, the, the it was a dark and stormy night kind of thing. Yeah. But I try to get you, I try to make it much more intimate. You're in a room mm -hmm. with a vampire. And suddenly, you know, and, and when the Daniel's would-be successor, Wolf, uh, goes in for his job interview, literally an interview with the vampire. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's meeting this creature in the room, and he's, suddenly he's, you know, this is where I think the 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 gothic element comes out. He's enclosed in a room, he can't get out, and he knows suddenly he's with a a monster who could eat him alive. Uh, so that's kind of how I like to play with it a little bit. Keep it intimate. Keep it in a room. You keep it familiar to to the reader. He's going for an interview, uh, mm -hmm. albeit with a you know. Uh, for for a monster, but he's going to an interview. We, we've all we've all had had anxious right. moments ahead of an interview. Oh, I, I I was terrified before this one. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you also pivot away from typically vampire stories are center on on the vampire or the vampire hunter, mm -hmm. and not and not someone who's facilitating or enabling the vampire. Exactly. Yeah. So this is unusual. We we do have our stories about human familiars or mm -hmm. supplicants or whatever, but mm -hmm. they're not they're they're not really believable. The characters, at least the ones I've encountered, mm -hmm. are more cartoon like or uh, it's just not complete characters. There's something missing. Where I wanted to, you know, start from a first person perspective. Daniel writing about, you know, uh, you know, telling you his story. And quite of the most of the scenes or a good number of them in this book are from his perspective. We are hearing it. He, he, he was seeing the vampire with his eyes. We're hearing, you know, the danger uh, in the room. Uh, and we're in his head thinking about his thought processes. How do I act? What mm -hmm. do I do next? Because mm -hmm. what I say or do, you know, uh, it, it will matter to me. It, it, it's a matter of life and death. Create suspense through point of view. Uh, mm -hmm. you're, uh, so so you're, you're speaking in the book from the point of view of Daniel, correct? Most of the time, I actually, uh, and this is uh, something that some many reviewers have commented on. Huh. They, uh, the, their, um, the, the point of view shifts. So sometimes we're in first person. Mm -hmm. So from Daniel's perspective, occasionally from Fiona's, uh, from Wolf's perspective as well, the, mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the guardian in training. Mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes I'll take a scene and I'll look at it and say, this is best done in third person omniscient. I just want to you know, tell the story uh, from th that perspective. And it can be a little bit disorienting to the reader. Wait, okay. We're no longer in first person. Uh, but I, you know, I, the way I structured the, 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 the chapters is they can get into it very easily, but there's a noticeable shift. 
And I wanted to make sure that the reader was prodded and felt uncomfortable. The ground is suddenly shifting on their uh, a little bit beneath their feet. Where am I in this story? What's going on? Okay, now I can pick it up. Where, uh, you know, but there's that just moment of like, wait, what's going on? And I wanted to include that because uh, it does give a clue into the sort of chaotic, almost manic world that these creatures live in. Vampires and the humans who serve them. Everything is uncertain. And uh, because, uh, you know, they're, they're constantly in search of food. They're constantly trying to figure out how are we going to get the money to pay for this blood? Uh, mm -hmm. Where is our supply next? Um, what are you, you know, we've got the supply for tonight. What about the next three nights? Or, you know, so that is something I wanted to tr transmit to to the reader. So that was a, that was a structural consideration, a structural decision to do that, to, to mm -hmm. shift those those points of view. So it, it was it was strategic. Yes. Yes, it was. I, I I wanted to put you, the reader, just on, on the back foot occasionally. Yeah. This this article goes on to say, when writing horror, you'll want to avoid third-person omniscient, which can distance your reader and lessen their investment in the story. Which I I think I think would would happen over a longer story, but you're kind of treating Fiona's guardians episodically. Yes, and almost yeah. almost as a as a as a diary or journal form in which we're we're stepping into to the lives uh, or or the perspectives of each of these characters exactly exactly and a note about the rules you know uh they're there for a reason they're uh -huh. there to help uh, this list is there to help readers write a horror mm -hmm. story and i would say good on the rules good on you for paying attention to them uh but when you've absorbed them then you can break them yeah and uh and the rules do work until they don't <laughs> And, and and language and storytelling are all very fluid and evolving. Consider plot twists to surprise your audience. Uh, and, and they give the example of William Faulkner's short story, Emily Rose, uh, after Emily dies, villagers find the corpse of, of the long vanished traveler in one of her spare beds with that, that silver hair uh, that's across the corpse lending, you know, sort of giving that creepy notion that she was sleeping with the corpse uh, mm. for those people who remember that, remember the, but that can be very difficult. When we think of horror, typically we go to, we go to film. Editing can do a lot for our, our psyche and our emotions, you know, where, where you're surprised by, by a face or a monster or, a, you know, a scream or whatever. It's much, much more difficult to affect the reader at moments in in a book is that correct yeah yeah i think you're right and the plot twists or, or turns just a little bit can really help guide the reader along the story because it, sometimes you need a break you need a break from yeah. the plot yeah <laughs> you're yeah. on a stretch and, and, and if and it, sometimes it is nice to just let the reader pause for a moment and take on okay we're we were in this track here now we're in a different place and I can kind of get more of what the, the author is trying to tell me about the world that he or she has created. Mm -hmm. uh, that is very helpful. Even more than plot twists, though, Bill, I, I think I like cul-de-sacs, a moment where you can you and you're maybe with the main character and and, uh, and then you could just get off the highway for a second and then let them both you experience this moment of rest with the the main characters and then i do this a couple times in in, in fiona's guardians where daniel and fiona are uh, you know take a moment away from the concerns of the moment mm -hmm. and suddenly they're talking about something 
they're having a conversation and i use this to do two things one to show a different side of, of fiona's character mm -hmm. a little bit of daniel's character as well and also to reveal something about where the plot may actually go but only after i've established a, a little just show a little character growth there and then we're back on the the, the highway as you will mm -hmm. toward the goal the destination but again the the horror writer's best friend is is tension absolutely and and how you get there uh how you structure uh, your book is going to you know be extremely important uh, for keeping that tension yeah. um I, I i like to start slow and then you know and, and i don't like to have a single climax either i i think that it helps to have uh, uh something where the reader identifies this is a very important moment of the book yeah, but then yeah. uh build it if you could build up even more tension and have something else happen that uh -huh. uh, that unsettles the reader uh or or even kind of gives them a a, a a moment to digest uh what what what's happening i, I oh, like that's that as well that's brilliant that's brilliant put your characters in compelling danger this this one i i thought especially pertained to your book the fear or struggle that your your protagonist must overcome yes uh i think daniel uh will always feel that uh if he doesn't perform well as a as a guardian uh for uh -huh. his uh, his employer uh that he uh, could he risks being uh killed um there's also a fear uh that he may not actually be allowed to retire and this is a, a major plot point in the book he's nearing the end of what he thinks is his uh, useful service life and he would like to have uh, spend the evening years uh, on his own greek island or something like that mm -hmm. you know because that's why wolf comes into the picture the the, the guardian and trainee uh, right, right training but yeah he has fears there's always this question in his mind will i be allowed to go uh -huh. uh, you know with all the knowledge that i have about this very secretive world of living with a vampire what that's like and all of her vampire associates by the way her vampire right. family the ultimate um, consequences of of their actions yeah exactly yeah so there is always that fear and it of course the fear of discovery if yeah. he he yeah. is the last line to fiona uh -huh. if the, you know, if there's police, if there's uh, we have an antagonist called Morstrige, an ancient uh, uh, Catholic order of vampire hunters who uh -huh. uh, become the antagonist for the book. The, the whole idea is that she must be protected at all costs. And it ends with him. He, he He's the last one in front of her. Uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you, uh, this is number seven. Use your imagination that you need to stand out in a crowd. Uh, Fiona's guardians does that exceptionally well thank you yeah yeah and i i think what i tried to do is just do something i i've consumed so many stories about vampires movies podcasts uh -huh. and, uh -huh. plays and, and and of course books but you um, said you also said set one of one of the characters in, in one of your stories as a nazi ss yeah. officer in the second world war which right. seems to me just a natural habitat for an e evil, bloodthirsty vampire. Right, absolutely. Uh, Soren Falenius, uh, who is uh, related to Fiona and is actually Daniel's uh -huh. first employer, who uh, is a, uh, yeah, as a former Nazi officer, SS officer, she, he's dying on the battlefield in Estonia in the middle of winter when mm -hmm. Fiona finds it. And her first words to him are, you know, what a pity, you look like an angel. And so she falls a little bit in love with him. Uh, and then uh, turns him into a vampire. So she, you know, she, she will, the world will not lose this person, but she also thinks she can change him because, you know, uh, the, uh, the idea about a Nazi officer at war, they're just killing people, killing people, killing people. They're not, you know, from a vampire's perspective, you know, that's not managing the herd 
very well. <laughs> you have to manage your blood supply. And so there's a, a, a lesson that she has learned from her creator, Agrippina, that uh, you, you, you have to exist you have to exist in nature. A predator must make sure that there will always be prey available. And so the indiscriminate killing that we see uh, in, in much of the world, including in, in Nazi Germany, you know, is, is something that's anathema to a vampire. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and so that's something that she tried to, uh, to teach Soren. You've built in uh, as a part of your story and, and maybe as a, as a part of your own character discovery, you've built in ethics and morality and mm -hmm. life structure uh, mm -hmm. and, and all of these considerations that uh, people probably don't consider when they yeah, think about and, a vampire exactly and I, I i don't it's okay for the, the reader to to read this and say i still disagree <laughs> with with these moral well, yeah. precepts, and, well, yeah. and, that, yeah. and that's great uh but i, I want to let you know that these creatures are capable <laughs> Uh, in fact, need to have some sort of a, uh, some sort of a way of existing in nature, and morality plays into that—a moral system. It's really a part of building building that greater world that anchors your character mm -hmm. uh, in in their 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 situation. Absolutely, absolutely, and of course, we see this with the vampire hunters of Morstrige, this uh, Catholic organization uh, that of uh, monks who who uh, you know travel the world looking for vampires to, to kill them, and and their human help helpers as well. Uh, they have they're driven by a very clear moral guide as well. They are mm -hmm. serving God by destroying these creatures of uh, these uh, children of Satan, as they put them. Uh, so there's a very clear moral uh, uh, motivation as well, which drives much of the plot. But you describe them as antagonists. You don't render them as as necessarily positive characters. It's easy to call them antagonists because okay. they're the vampire hunters, and we spend so much time with Fiona and Daniel that uh, anybody who attacks Fiona must be somehow an enemy. I I do like to leave in the reader's mind, let it open, uh, leave it open that that uh, who is the antagonist and who's the protagonist. Um, okay. Uh, okay. You know, are the vampires the evil ones, and that includes Fiona's family. The sort of or, situational moral shifting grounds. Exactly. Again, shifting grounds, instilling uncertainty in the reader. I think yeah. it's extremely important to do that, especially in a horror uh, tale. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At novel.com, I found uh, I found this, uh, and I'll post these articles in the in the notes below. How to write a horror story: six terrific tips. So explore malevolent and wicked characters, deeds, mm -hmm. and phenomena. In other words, you need to define who is and who isn't wicked and what their motivations are. Absolutely, this is. But that can be important. that can be very changing. The characters, the, these malevolent characters, uh, the these ones we we understand at the beginning of the novel to be evil, yeah. have a character arc. They could develop. They could change. Yeah. Maybe not yeah. much, yeah. but just enough so you can sympathize or empathize with them. That's important too. You know. And and I said in the in the uh, in the introduction uh, that horror stories are, are are essentially human stories. They're about mm. so much more. It, it's about the transgressions that we that we face. So you're you're taking yeah. you're taking those everyday those mundane and you're throwing them into a larger than life situation and pulling in your reader and adding adding levels that they have to work through on their own as well. Exactly. Yeah. And they're just. Uh... So many different ways you can structure, but you have to have this element of fear. You have to have this element of uncertainty in the reader. Um, I, I like this one, and we, we won't go into everything here. People can read all these for themselves. Arouse feelings of, uh, of fear, shock, and disgust, as well as a sense of 
of the uncanny. I wanted to concentrate on the uncanny. Well, when you're talking about supernatural creatures, it could be werewolves or witches or zombies or or, or vampires. Huh. Uh, the the, un, the uncanny becomes easier to imagine because you're already dealing with creatures that we expect to have uh, different powers and huh. do huh. things. So uh, yes, absolutely, uh, you can have uh, you can. Uh, I think it's a really good idea to explore. It may show something new about a, a character, mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. like um, you know, it, it's uncanny for me as a reader to encounter werewolves in a story that uh, d- that can change at will from human to to uh, werewolf to monster form, uh, as opposed to those uh, one or two nights uh, that you get a full moon, <laughs> right? So I love I look I look for that with Fiona's Guardians. I think though. There is a lot of uncanny, uh, but I think a lot of it is just, uh, it still stays within the realm of, uh, mm-hmm. of it's grounded in a human reality. Absolutely. And uh, and I, I suppose the reader will find, you know, things that maybe seem a little uncanny, but that was not my goal to set out uh, uh-huh. with this. I wanted to make it as realistic as possible. In the uncanny, it can also be can also be that that magical element that has to make sense to to the reader as well. So I'm going to do one more here. Use a mm-hmm. strong and pervasive tone in Fiona's Guardians, and I've read it. You you do you do use a strong tone throughout the book, even though you're you're shifting that character perspective. But that tone is always present. How would you describe that tone? I would actually describe it as as a somewhat hopeful tone that daniel has has hope that he's he's doing something worthwhile not just for himself yeah he hasn't completely wasted his life working 35 years for a vampire yes. yeah i think because he, he does picture that greek island where that he's going to retire to yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah yeah so you're right i think i i actually like that uh that description of the book because it can't all be doom and gloom, right, Bill? I mean, it can't. No, <laughs> we, we, we've got we've got an awful lot of that. So, so yeah. the story is complete. How do you begin marketing, which is such an essential aspect of mm-hmm. authorship? It is. It is, and I know a lot of. I mean, I talk to a lot of writers, and the vast majority of them say they struggle mightily with yeah. uh, uh, yeah. with with ramming their head against a wall, and finally, I can't break through. Which is why we spend a lot of time on that with authors on this yeah. podcast. Because okay. it's, it's such a black hole. But go ahead. Yes. So uh, this is based on my experience of a two-year campaign promoting Fiona's Guardians. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm assuming that most writers don't have a lot of money. So I'm calling this. Uh, I have a PowerPoint uh, that I'm going to be giving tomorrow night even on this. Uh, oh, that's great. South, with the Southwest Writers Association. And, uh, you know, this is all about. You know, DIY book promo. Do it yourself. Yeah. Don't spend us. I, I have not spent a dime. Uh, uh, Facebook boosts or uh, any kind of pr- promo wow. uh, at all. So really, this is all about uh, securing a few things. You need a, the following things okay. to make sure that you have a chance of getting your book seen and into readers' hands. Mm-hmm. One, you have to have a book that represents you at your best. I have written novels before. They have not been that good. Mm-hmm. Fiona's Guardians is the best book that I could have written. The Chicago uh, Writers Association gave me a, an excellent write-up, a reviewer, uh, Susan Gasper. So that review is still up on the CWA website. You have to have really good reviews. And then you have to have friends and followers. You have to go. So for a vampire novel, it's really easy. You you go into Facebook groups that are run by people who are vampire fans, Dracula groups, groups devoted to gothic 
horror or gothic lifestyle. That's where I began friending people, as many as the, the algorithms would let me uh, friend. <laughs> and so I built up a good, uh, a lot of connections there. Good. Uh, and, and then the fourth thing you need to have is your book in bookstores. This is really hard. I get a, a lot of people who tell me that independent bookstores just are not looking at their books. If they're lucky, they they, they will get into their local bookstore and they'll, they'll have to pay, you know, it'll be a consignment. So being on Amazon isn't enough. It really shouldn't be enough. I think you need, you know, because, because this, Amazon is a great retailer of books, but they're not going to explain to their audience, their shoppers, how much they love a particular book, how much they love books in general. Bookstore people are super fans of books they love authors they love every kind of story as long as the book is well written and is getting decent reviews they will shout your name from That's the rooftops great, and they will... you've got to get these people on your side how do you do that this is where i've spent the most amount of my time bill starting in june of 2021 i started writing to individual bookstores first in the chicago area then all throughout illinois then the midwest then all over the country and of course in the uk canada australia i have sent thousands upon thousands of emails to bookstore owners i have reached out to them on facebook uh, and other places but generally speaking you start with emails at least this is how i did it mm -hmm. and uh, i have written there is not a single in the united states at least there's not a single independent bookstore that sells new books, general interest, that I haven't contacted at least 10 times. But occasionally, I will get a hit. Mm -hmm. um, I just heard back from somebody I wrote 14 months ago, uh, a bookstore in Rochester, uh, Minnesota. They invited me up just last uh, this past weekend to, to do a signing event at their store. Mm -hmm. Bookstore owner in Burlington, Iowa, got back to me after a year and uh, said, okay, we're carrying Fiona's Guardians at our store. Here's a picture. And this is the key. Once you get a bookstore, anywhere that is carrying your book mm -hmm. whether through uh, stocking or consignment doesn't matter mm -hmm. with this next thing please ask them for a photo of them holding your book there is nothing that works for you on social media yep. like a smiling bookseller holding your book and you can tag them and say you know so and so that's uh read between the lines of woodstock illinois says you need <laughs> this vampire novel that is just gold and I have, a, I probably, I have, on my Pinterest page, you can see all of my uh, bookstore photos that I have accumulated. I'm in about That's why they call it social media. Yes. So I've got about 27 bookstores right now that have carried my book, uh, five in the UK. And now, are you stocking those books or your, is your publisher stocking those books? In Whitby, England, my uh, publisher stocked, uh, gave okay. 10 copies. Okay. Uh, it was a consignment deal that he worked out with, uh, with okay. uh, Whitby Bookshop. And then here's the other thing. You, occasionally, there's a bookstore in Wellsboro, Pennsylvania, uh, from my shelf, Books and Gifts, uh, that gave me bookstore cats right next to my book. That was also, I mean, I got boffo engagement uh -huh. from, uh, from having that, uh, just that two photos of these two cats, Huck and Finn, sitting next to a copy of my wow. book. And yeah, and bookstore cats, by the way, there's a hashtag for that. On Facebook and Twitter, you can't go wrong. Really? Instagram, you cannot go wrong. This is where you get the engagement from your readers. People look at that and they go, oh, my God, this bookstore owner really loves this book. Perhaps I should investigate this, look at some reviews, maybe buy the book. Uh, that is a, the most powerful tool I can think of based on my two-year experience of this. The most powerful tool are bookstore photos.
It's really word have... of mouth, even if you don't, even if you don't know that particular mouth. Yes, exactly. Now, occasionally they'll be shy and say, "I'd rather not take a picture of my staff or me," and they'll send you a display pic. That's fine. Okay. Be grateful for the display pic, yeah. but you, I, I guarantee you, you will not get as nearly as good engagement. You know, you've got to have that smiling bookseller, or better yet, bookstore cats. Um, Bookstore dogs would work too, I guess, like iguanas or whatever. <laughs> you know, whatever you can <laughs> get from the bookstore, share it across the universe. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. So for, for people who maybe aren't adept at writing emails, what do you begin with? What's that first line or that subject line? You know, just be you. Keep it okay. short because these okay. are very busy people. If people yeah. run independent bookstores. They don't have a lot of time. Yeah. So just say, I say something like, greetings. I'm thrilled to share a fantastic review I just got from the Dark Sire magazine or from the Chicago Writers Association about my vampire novel. And then you get mm -hmm. into it very quickly, leave the link and say, here's the ISBN number. Please consider carrying this book. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you do, I will share bookstore. I'll share photos of your bookstore everywhere. Uh, just and that, that's a paragraph. Not much. Get out of their way. Let them decide. If you don't hear from them in a month, write back. Mm-hmm. Approach right. them on Facebook. Be persistent, but uh, occasionally be prepared also to have one or two bookstore owners say after your 10th email to them uh, in a year, uh, please don't contact me anymore. They, they will, there will be one or two. There's a bookstore, one bookstore in the Chicago area that very politely asked me not to contact them anymore. Really? That's fine. Huh. That's, I respect that. That's cool. Uh, you know, but the important thing is you have to hear back yeah. from the, some of them. And of the thousands of emails I've sent out, I have probably only gotten 0.001% positives back where they mm -hmm. actually give me a photo showing the book in the store. It's worth it. Well, we're, we're writers and authors. We should be used to used to at least a little rejection, right? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, you know, once you've been through this process, my, my novel, my manuscript was rejected numerous times by <laughs> agents and then publishers. So, yeah. Did you employ, uh, and I, I, I use the employ uh, broadly, uh, did you did you employ the use of of readers uh, before you sent your book away to to a publisher? We we spoke with uh, with Don mm -hmm. Evans, the uh, the book doctor, um, and and he's a big fan of getting eyeballs on that manuscript and yep. working out the bugs. Sure. Uh, now I didn't use something like a sensitivity reader or whatever, but I recommend that if you've got material that you you think it needs that kind of attention. Yeah. But also, uh, you know, just the importance of an, a good edit. So in an early draft of my book, when it was only 50,000 words at that point, it, it ended up being 61,000. I decided to look around for people who are either recent graduates or college seniors looking for uh, mm -hmm. internships. Mm-hmm. Just to get a, a, an edit that I didn't have to pay a professional editor a thousand dollars or more. Yeah. Which, uh, by, by the way, the, every editor out there who's worth their salt is probably worth that thousand dollars. I'm uh -huh. not saying that they're not worth it. I couldn't afford it at the time. So for two hundred fifty bucks, I approached a, a recent college English grad who I knew at the radio station. I said, "Hey, uh, would you be willing to give me an edit?" And I'm looking for more than spelling and grammar. I need a content edit. If you if it's, if a character acts out of character, let me know. Flag that. Uh, mm -hmm. If a, a plot development makes no sense to you, flag that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I got a manuscript back with lots of little post-it notes and saying, you know, she had you know a yellow marker and then a little margin notes and everything. She, for two hundred fifty dollars, 
I had a really good initial edit of my book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I highly recommend you do that. There are college uh, juniors and seniors looking for internships, and they may not even know that this opportunity exists. Yeah, to you know, to contact the school English department, whatever, find a way to get uh, access to uh, one or two students who can help you. Oh, that's that's incredible. That's that's a that's a brilliant strategy. Reading out loud. So Elizabeth Wetmore said that she uh, she read her book out loud to discover some of the the inconsistencies. I, I'm uh, I'm in the process of recording one of my books for an audiobook, and it, it's unpublished. So I'm finding little little mistakes as I'm reading it out loud and correcting them uh, as I, as I go. Did you do yeah, that? I did. I did. And you know, I do this every day. Yeah. You know, Bill, you as a, as a, as a radio person, uh, you'll, you'll sympathize with this, I think. Uh, uh, uh. I, uh, <laughs> I read a, a news copy and tease copy, PSA copy, whatever. Yeah, I'm yeah. constantly reading copy. Most of what I say on the radio is written or at least bullet pointed. Yeah. Um, yeah. and I read that stuff before I go on the air. The yeah. mic's off. I'm 30 seconds to go. I'm still working on my newscast. And I'm reading it out loud and underlining I, or striking words. I was so doing long. that with the introduction before uh, before we went on for the podcast. So, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I get that. Well, we have a set of eyes to read. Yeah. We also yeah. have, you know, the, a set of ears to you. And this is different <laughs> ways of absorbing information. Mm -hmm. And so you're getting, uh, you know, twice as much of an edit, if you will, if you're, if you're not only reading the words, but uh, with your eyes, but also reading them aloud uh, so you can hear what doesn't make sense. Or you can hear when a sentence is going on too long. Oh, God, that took me. I got to take a deep breath here. Cut <laughs> some words. You know? uh -huh. uh, yeah, you should you should see my markup on, on these introductions. I've got I've got, you know, uh, a, a, you know, a, a, an apostrophe that's uh, 22 point uh, so oh, that man. I won't forget it. Phrases underlined, bold, emboldened. Uh, just you know, little taglines and tag words and and power words and just so just so I get that right when I when I read it out loud. So you published vignettes in horror magazines before writing the book. What were the advantages uh, of doing that both for for the marketing of the book and for the story or characters? I'll get to the marketing in a second. This is something I highly recommend for anybody who's uh, starting out writing a novel. Uh -huh. Find a chapter a chapter or two that stand alone as a short story. I was struggling with you know, the idea of taking on a 50, 60,000 word novel. How am I going to write that? If you just take it scene by scene yeah. and make it a, a single short story, uh, it's a lot easier. And then, of course, if a publisher accepts it, you know you're on the right track. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. what happened with Crack, uh, Crack the Spine. I also, I, I mean, there were, I think, a dozen chapters yeah. Of, Fiona, of Fiona's Guardians that started out as short stories um, uh, in in various uh, literary and genre magazines. The marketing part is also really useful because you're setting it. Go ahead and, and, and submit. Once you've got a, a short story published, submit that story to uh, a reviewer, a, a book blogger, for example. A lot of them like to have little different features. So they're always reviewing, obviously, full-length books, but some of them like have Short Story Monday or, or whatever. <laughs> and they just want to give their 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 readers, their audience, something a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And so there was a handful of book bloggers that I pitched who did reviews on this short story that appeared in Crack the Spine. It was called The Caretaker back then. Mm -hmm. And uh, already, they all gave me very good reviews. Wonderful. And so 
I had a relationship established with these book bloggers who in their reviews said, I would really like to see more of these characters. I would like to see this fleshed out into a novel. And when the novel was finally finished and ready to publish, I, I reached out to these book bloggers and said, hey, the novel is coming. Would you like an advanced copy and do a review of that in time for a publication date? And most of them said yes. And so that was just a huge, a huge benefit uh, for having um, established their audience. I've, re I've already been reaching their audience. Now mm -hmm. I can do it again with a full length book. So you shot the book um, overseas. I, I would have gone all the way to Transylvania. You're, you're, <laughs> you're, you're, yeah. all, you're almost there. So mm -hmm. no, but but uh, so so you're you're shopping the book. Did you give up on on shopping the book to publishers in in the states and then go to London? Was was it just and uh, and across the board, whoever whoever buys this book buys the book. Well, yeah. So I was looking, um, I think I was using Query Tracker and some other uh, resources. Uh, I was looking for publishers who uh, would accept gothic horror. This right, is after right. all the- And you can narrow down those searches to to that yeah. very subgenre. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This is after all the agents had said no. Mm -hmm. And now I'm looking for publishers. Mm -hmm. So uh, under horror uh, or maybe gothic horror, if, if the search uh, parameters will allow. And then I just started going through all these. And then uh, there were many in the U.S., some in Ireland and the UK. Um, and then I just went through all of them and pitched all of them. Uh, I, I don't remember how many rec uh, uh, said no. I mean, I mean, they all said no, but I can't remember how, it was so many. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I found uh, Burton Mayer's books in, uh, in England and uh, I found them on Twitter of all places. And uh, they said, hmm, this is an interesting premise. Send me your full manuscript. And so I said it and uh, it was not long after uh, that I heard back from the principal who said, yeah, I want this book. So we had some back and forth, some revisions, and then you know how the process goes. And then within, you know, the book, the contract was signed in May of 2020. By October, the book came out. Wow. Wow. Cool. That's actually a fast turnaround. It was. It was. Uh, and I was really grateful for the uh, the way, the attention that uh, the, the, the publisher gave to the book, to, you know, including the interior. Uh, the publisher, the publisher also did the original artwork for the cover. I wanted to talk to you about the, about the hardcover edition. Um, so, so the book is released in paperback. Then I saw this really neat marketing strategy to sell the hardcover version. Tell us about that little hook. Uh, well, first of all, I, I think when you're working with a publisher or any, anything you do as an author, success breeds success. My author saw my efforts to to promote the paperback that came out in October of 2020. And then he was very pleasantly surprised when um, a professional theater company, Artists Ensemble Theater, yeah. did a, a, a podcast, a theater of the mind sort of podcast version of uh, the book. Uh, that impressed my publisher a lot. Uh, so, you know, he thought, you know, I can, I, I'm going to put some more effort into this. I'm going to, um, I'm going to put together a, a hardback edition. He, he, we, we talked about it. He said mm -hmm. he really wanted to do a hardback edition of this uh, book. And he said, well, we're going to need a couple of little things. We're going to need some new artwork. And he hired a Ukrainian artist, Martelia. She has a, a company called Martelia Design. Mm -hmm. But he also wanted a couple of extra chapters, new chapters. So I had already been writing the sequel. And I said, well, how about a couple chapters from the sequel? And he said, send them over. And he, he liked it. We did, but then both, we did a couple edits. And then those are now at the back of this book. And it's meant to be a teaser for the sequel, which hopefully mm -hmm. will come out next mm -hmm. October. 
series do well with readers. Readers like series. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I did. I did, okay. Let's, I'll keep a series if I can. You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the turnaround time is going to be a little more. Um, as you know, I spent two years promoting the original paperback of Fiona's Guardians. Right. I did not spend much time writing the sequel. Okay. I only started that this summer, writing the sequel in any serious way. Um, so most of the, what I, what was I doing? Aside from my day job, I was promoting, 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 writing those thousands of emails to get into bookstores, that kind of thing, doing readings, trying to get into uh, do reading events and whatnot. Uh, so another thing that the, the author needs to think about when they're uh, balancing their time is how much time do you want to spend on your next book? And uh, I think we're taught to dive in right away. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to suggest that greatness can't be rushed. And if you if you want your next book to be as good as your mm-hmm. first successful book, but cliches you really... often are. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and and you run the risk of of creating a a banal story, but but worse, creating um, banal characters who yes. do exactly what they did in the first book and don't grow as people do. And, right. and don't evolve right absolutely and i think that uh, the author has kind of in this case the author has uh, imposed an artificial deadline on themselves yeah, that book yeah. second book doesn't really need to come out until it's ready so i would suggest if you want to make your next book as good or better than your first one then let it marinate take a year or, or whatever i'm reminded that Anne rice you know she put out interview with the vampire in 1976 uh-huh. nine years later nine years later the second book uh Lestat comes out yeah so i know she, she was writing some other stuff but really that took a long time mm-hmm. and uh it, it needed it i think mm-hmm. um Lestat is also a very good book mm-hmm. uh, so just an example of that so this is take that first year to promote as much as you can uh online in person whatever you know for me i wrote some essays during that time, publish those. If that's easier for me, it doesn't as a deep dive as writing fiction. Uh, after the holidays, I'm going to spend the winter finishing up the sequel okay. so I can get it to my publisher by May and then hopefully an October release. So we live in a multimedia world in, in which people get their information and their fiction and their stories in, in a multitude of ways. Carrie Kendall, uh, my former co-host on, on the on the radio show. Is is a massive devotee of audiobooks. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. For for time, she's always in the car. You are uh, you're one of the best readers I've I've ever heard, and I've had the pleasure of hearing you a couple of times. Is there an audiobook version of Fiona's Guardians, or have you considered it? And and I say that knowing full well that it is a massive undertaking to. <laughs> to create an audiobook yes sir it is uh and, and i have i am aware that there is a big market for audiobooks uh i am aware that i should be doing this i haven't started it yet um i may uh attempt it this winter i should i wish i had one right now but i've been spending my time doing so many other things related yeah. to this book but i agree that especially for younger generations especially uh, uh millennials and even more so gen z they're consuming books through via audio they're not uh, reading as much uh, right, right. Uh, which i totally get i want to reach them 
So mm-hmm. how do I do it? And this mm-hmm. is, you're, you're right. This is something I should explore more deeply. Um, I am thinking about also, there's also questions about how to monetize it. How do you, you know, where, who, where, how does the, you know, the, do I pay, do people pay for a file? How do I get the file to them? You know, what right. kind of file do I use? Right. There are some technical and pay questions that I'd have to work out. But in the end, I guess I just have to get off my duff and get into the studio and record it. (laughs) Amazon has, has that, has that service. And I think it's, uh, um, it's monetized through, through their service. Once you create the file or files, I've been breaking it down like this uh, in, in packets of five chapters and, uh, and, the, the chapters aren't all that long, but, but they're very specific. I would think that you don't want to hit somebody with a 10 or 15 hour audiobook that's yeah. unbroken uninterrupted that works sometimes for for people they you know where they stop they can pick up where they left off there there are some formats that just don't allow that in in my car as i as i'm listening to things uh if if i stop and and remove the mp3 or or, or device and then plug it back in it it starts over oh and, and yeah. I, so i can't I can't rewind or forward or go back. So so I'm stuck having to listen to a long file from beginning to end. So that oh. that's a consideration. Carrie Kendall, who is my is my bellwether on this, says no, absolutely not on sound effects or sound accompaniments uh, for audiobooks. But I could see um, we we've argued that around the block a number of times but i i can see in in certain instances and, and especially with fiona's guardians that at least some audio would be would be important i think you're right i don't disagree completely with with carrie i guess the situ- i'll have to look at the situation and it was stuff that i would add in i would dub in later you know yeah. mix in later you yeah. know if i if i felt like a scene really really needed that but in the end I'm learning a lot here just talking with you about it, Bill. And actually, I'm, I'm kind of I'm becoming more and more um, uh, focused on the idea of actually producing an audio book. I mm-hmm. think that you've lit, you've lit a fire under me. There you that. go. There you <laughs> go. I, I think I think it's a it's a really underrealized art form. And mm-hmm. I, I know it would be careless to to blur the line too much between an audio book and mm-hmm. an audio drama. Uh, on, right. on the radio show we did, uh, we did the Virginian, uh, mm-hmm. and there were sound files under that to accompany the actors. Uh, sometimes twenty and thirty layers of of sound effects to to build that world. But that's theater, um, and that's audio theater. And and I think there still needs to be a, a clear defining line between the audio book and audio theater. Your thoughts on that? I, I know that we, the producers of that audio it matters a lot to us yeah what yeah. am i creating what yeah. am i creating yeah. uh i wonder i don't have the answer to this but I, I it's an open question for me i do does it matter to say um to somebody who would prefer to listen to an audio presentation of a book hmm. whether or not does it what do you call it doesn't matter as long as it's really good uh, and it's a very compelling audio uh, mm-hmm. they'll they'll mm-hmm. listen to it i i, I suspect Mm-hmm. That uh, good audio will find a good uh, a good audience. There's room for exploration there. So, Phil, uh, a local mm-hmm. filmmaker made a great teaser piece. How did that come about? And and have you have you uh, created a script for Fiona's Guardian? I have seen the script. I have I have tried to write a screenplay. Okay. 
Uh, it wasn't very good. I have never written a screenplay before. Mm-hmm. So this guy named Stuart Wallen, uh, who is known for short films, he's won some awards for the short films that he's made. Uh, mm-hmm. He uh, approached me. We've been I, we've had a lot of similar connections on social media, and yeah. he's been aware of my efforts to promote Fiona's Guardians. And so uh, he came to me one day and says, you know, this, this sounds like it really should be a film. I said, I agree. <laughs> he says, you know, I, I, I write short, I make short films. Let me, let me just put together a, a, a screenplay for you. Let me know what you think. Wow. There was actually, in, that, in the year 2000, I reviewed uh, a CD by a band that Stuart Wallen was in. Uh, Morning Glory was what they were called. And I, I could probably forgot about it until he reminded me just uh, maybe a month ago, six weeks ago. Uh, that's when he approached me. So anyway, he said, I want to do something with Fiona's Guardians. I think this would be a really good film. So he goes away for a week, comes back a week later, sends me a, 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 a PDF of the, of the screenplay. Mm-hmm. And it's good. It's really good. He takes three chapters, different chapters in the podcast, the theater podcast, three chapters, and it makes a complete story. And you saw the teaser that he is, and we're casting is open right now. The we trailer has, has a bit of a, of a noir feeling. It does, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Yeah, and I think that sticks closer to the novel than uh, yeah. the theater theater podcast, yeah. which is fine. I think what the theater podcast did was a, an excellent production. I loved it, uh, but it was uh, less foreboding, I think, and less noirish uh, than than mm-hmm. the novel. And I think this film sticks very close to the spirit of the novel. Mm-hmm. I, I just finished and submitted it to a uh, to a Hollywood uh, director or Hollywood producer, rather. Uh, one of uh, a screenplay based on one of my books. It's not easy to adapt a a story from page to, to to a visual story. There's a lot of considerations you need to take in uh, what what your audience will see and what they will perceive and and what they will understand about the story and your characters. It's uh, yeah. it, it's 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 certainly an art form. My hat goes off to to anybody who um, to to write screenplays. While I have you here, you're yeah. a news guy, and I wanted to ask you about the recent trend in banning books. Yeah, and, it's back. It is the trend is back. It's uh, and and with a vengeance, it seems. Yeah, uh, you're right, and I've been and a lot of these days. It's um, you know, books about uh, uh, trans people or is uh, or uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual. Still, yeah, uh, they're, yeah. they're talking about that. Of course, uh, the black experience, uh, the the six, uh, the the you know, the how to teach black history. Yes. Uh, or hit yeah. or or the black experience is part of American history. Yeah. Uh, how to teach yeah. that? That is another thing that I've been thinking about. So yeah, and to, I have some thoughts on that. I, I'd like to share. When someone wants to ban or restrict. For example, a book with LGBT themes, uh, you're trying to get your school or your community to deny that LGBT people exist. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when you try to ban a book about the black experience, you're trying to get your neighbors to erase black people or black history. Mm -hmm. Same with Native American history. And if you object to books that have uh, frank depictions of sex or sexuality, you're shutting down an opportunity to have an age-appropriate discussion about sex. Uh, you know, so I, I would say to people who want to ban books, you're ultimately trying to to deny the circulation of information, Indeed. and that is something that is something the founders of this nation warned us about. 
you know, when you try to restrict information, you are behaving like a tyrant and you're, you're clearly these are showing... people. These are people that that parade in front of us all the time, the nebulous concepts of liberty and freedom. But this is in no in no small terms, an absolute strategy of censorship. Absolutely. And censorship yeah. is a fast route. It's a, you know, a to to a totalitarian state. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, a, a democratic society needs to have uh, access to information because that's how democracy mm -hmm. works. And these are also people, by the way, these are also people who extol the virtues of the free market system. And yet mm -hmm. they don't want the free market to work when it comes when it comes to to books and authors yeah. and the people who will be affected or um, or, uh, or 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 need those books to ha have a sense of community, to to deepen a sense of community. No, you're absolutely right. And uh, if there's any one good thing that's coming out of this debate about whether or not to ban or restrict books, is that the people who would ban are showing their true colors. And I would say to you, we now see you. We know who you for who you are, and we are going to keep an eye on you, and we are going to act appropriately uh, at the ballot box. Dan Klepstad is a public radio host and newscaster, as well as the author of Fiona's Guardians, which is available from Amazon. Thank you for taking the time today, brother. This hey. is great, man. And before we leave you today, when you think of announcer Bill Curtis, author doesn't immediately spring to mind. But Bill is the author of a number of books. His latest futuristic novel is titled 2050, A Parable for a Dying Planet. Our friends Dave Stern and Rick Kempfer spoke with Bill Curtis about the book and his first job in radio. Here's a bit from their Minutia Men celebrity interview on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. The following is a Tony Lasano podcast. An Opie show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This is the Minutia Men Celebrity Interview with Rick and Dave. Our guest today is one of those people that needs no introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, he's, he's a legend in Chicago for his many years manning the Channel 2 News with Walter Jacobson, a nationally known Chicago uh, newsman thanks to his years at CBS Network News. But Bill Curtis is much more than that. He's still working more than ever. He's a scorekeeper announcer at NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the voice of the Decades Network, the author of a novel called 2050, the owner of Curtis Productions, and we'll get into all of that. But here's what I want to ask about first. All right, I want to hear about a young disc jockey in Kansas from KTOP Radio named Tony Curtis. <laughs> wow, I know him. Uh, Radio One, <laughs> KTOP Radio One. Uh, we had a disc jockey known as uh, Professor J. Jasmo Bob. <laughs> professor of the College of Knowledge of Jazz. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> With the uh, Sonoramic News Cruiser number one uh, <laughs> you know, driving throughout Topeka Color Channel. <laughs> God, I love it. What, what's the weather? <laughs> Tell us the weather. <laughs> you know, it was it was the days of Top 40 Radio. I don't even know that that's still around. Um, and and they had all the teenagers, uh, you know, in town mm -hmm. listening. <laughs> so so why Tony Curtis was that was that obviously I mean to was he a star at that time Tony Curtis yeah yeah, yeah okay 
He was very big, and that's only half of it. It was Tony Curtis with a K. Yeah, if Rick, of course, totally different. And so, and it was not my idea. Oh, it, it was wasn't. Uh, <laughs> well, no. <laughs> well, yeah, wasn't Landecker? Yeah, uh, you, you, you know John Records, Landecker? Records, yeah. of course. Uh, Record, so he I, changed his name officially. Well, no, that was his, that's real, his name. real name. Right? He, was real really, really? he was really <laughs> born with his mother's maiden name was Records, and that was his middle name. Oh, my God. But when he went to uh, Philadelphia, uh, and he was a, a top 40 disc jockey, probably near the same era, they changed uh, his name to Scott Walker, <laughs> even though <laughs> even though Records was his name. Truly was his middle name, and he was playing records. They changed his name to Scott Walker, <laughs> which I just thought is a very funny. Um, many people don't know this that you wrote a book. You wrote, and Rick and I had the honor of helping you publicize it. Um, tell us a little bit about 2050. Um, it's your name of your book is 2050: A Parable. For a dying planet, sounds like a comedy. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it's available on Amazon. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about this? Is is this your attempt to you know get the world to try to take climate change seriously, or you know what is your intent? Yeah, tell us a little bit about twenty fifty. Yeah. Yes, it is, and I'm looking into the future to the to the year twenty fifty. And as a matter of fact, that's my current uh, cause. Uh, trying to gather enough data so that I can write something else, maybe an extension of 2050, mm-hmm. uh, because, uh, you know, we have 800,000 refugees from Syria living in camps in, yeah, uh, right. in Jordan. I mean, I mean, this is real, real stuff, not uh, the little stuff like the virus. Right. But um, and it is set in Kansas. And all of a sudden, uh, the town, little town right outside my ranch, um, sees a cloud of dust. And um, they sort of know what it is, but it's a group of migrants uh, that is on the road heading their way. And the migrants come not only from uh, out of the country, but... uh, uh, you know, displaced people from the Southwest because the Southwest uh, is no longer habitable. Yeah. And uh, they all gather and here they come. And so I, you know, take a little bit of all the stories that I have covered and uh, I've got a gang and, and the locals, you either have to fight or flee or they'll take over the town. Well, where are they going to go? You know, all the people who are going to be moving out of the coastline losing their homes when the oceans rise, where are they going to go? Well, one place is that small towns that are dying now, you know, and um, you put uh, enough people into a small town and they've taken it over. So anyway, that's the basic theme. That's great. Two killings, little blood. (laughs) Well, I think Will Ferrell will be excellent in this (laughs) movie, by the way. (laughs) Adam McKay. (laughs) Judd Apatow, are you listening? He could make them laugh themselves. (laughs) Bill, this has been a great honor for us. Thank you very much for being on the show. Um, uh, Is is there something that uh, you've got going on that you'd want to plug that we have missed? Uh, No, I, I do, but I don't want to blow it. Oh, um, oh. Maybe we'll talk about it. I'm sure you'll want to talk about it, uh, you know, uh, a little bit later. 
Okay. Maybe make an extension. I'm sorry to do that, but that's okay. You know, you always have a place well, yeah, we'll, right here. Lo- we have a barely scratched the surface, so right. we'd love to have you right. back yeah. sometime. Yeah, and remember I'm Costa just, Rica. Uh, we are huge yeah. in Costa Rica, bro. right? Exactly. So uh, <laughs> I don't. We don't know why, but we are. And uh, uh, you know, uh, maybe that do something for Costa Rica and you're, you're gold, my yeah. friend. Well, Thank- I love that. You know, I've been there several times doing the new explorers. Yeah, we love go. Costa Rica. Well, you know what? We'll do a remote. Bill, thanks for being on the show. Okay, guys. All Thank right. you thanks, very Bill. much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for this week's edition of the Minutia Men Celebrity Interview. Special thanks to executive producer Tony Lasana with opishows.com. Uh, opi is hippo backwards, O-P-P-I-H shows.com. Thanks, Tony. Um, we're distributed by Ed Silla, the Radio Misfits. Great Talk Radio isn't dead. It's just moved to a better place, radiomisfits.com. And we'll be back again next week with another Minutia Men Celebrity Interview. For the full interview, a link to Minutia Men Celebrity Interviews on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network is in the notes below. And that will do it for this episode of Chicago Writes, the podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. I'd like to thank my guests, Dan Klefstad, and to Rick and Dave, and for all of you for choosing this podcast. Links to our guests and the Chicago Writers Association, chicagorights.org, are in the notes below. And don't forget, with the holidays approaching, a $25 membership to the Chicago Writers Association makes a great gift and unlocks a wealth of resources and opportunities for the writer in your life. Visit chicagorights.org. Please subscribe to this podcast and share it with the writers and lovers of writing in your life. For Chicago Writes, I'm your host, W.C. Turk.